I'd love for you to take a Bible and open to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to verse 18. We're continuing. This is week 4 in our summer sermon series titled Knowing Jesus. We talked week 1 about Jesus being the ruler. We talked week 2 about Jesus being the Savior. Last week, Ron Hinesley did a great job preaching and he talked to us about Jesus being our friend. What does it mean that Jesus is our friend? And this morning, we're going to talk about Jesus being faithful. We just sang about that, and that's what the big idea of this sermon is this morning. I'm just going to get right to it. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful. Why would we devote our summer to talking about truths about Jesus that may seem elementary, they may seem basic to you. Uh, We've given you several reasons over the last couple weeks. Let me just draw your attention this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. I don't intend to preach uh, an extra sermon on Ephesians 4, but I'd like to read a few verses from Ephesians 4. Beginning in verse 11, Paul says he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, that He is Jesus. Jesus gave leaders to the church. Some of these offices, apostles and prophets, we no longer have. They're foundational offices, as Paul describes in the book of Ephesians. But we do have evangelists, and we have shepherds or pastors, and we have teachers. Why do we have them? Verse 12 says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Meaning it's not the job of leaders in the church to do all of the ministry in the church. Rather, it's the job of leaders in the church to lead in doing ministry in the church and to equip the people of God, the saints, believers, Christians, to come alongside the leaders in doing that work. When that happens, verse 12, you'll experience the building up of the body of Christ. The church will be built up. It will be strengthened. Verse 13, the goal is that we have unity in faith and unity in the knowledge of Son of God. And when we have unity in our faith and unity in the knowledge of who Jesus is, we begin to get closer to what Paul describes here as maturity, mature manhood. We've talked about maturity the last couple weeks from Colossians chapter 1. The goal in talking about Jesus is that we move closer and closer toward maturity. That's why we have leaders in the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry that we would be built up and unified and that we would be mature. Why is this important? Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. I just want you to understand that evangelical churches in the Bible Belt are filled with spiritual children. People who know just enough about Jesus to sort of play a spiritual churchy game, but people who are not grounded firmly and solidly in the truth about Jesus. And the consequence of that is, the result is, that those people are easily tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They go to a a camp or they get online and they watch something or they listen to a podcast and they say, oh, that sounds good, that sounds convincing, I've never heard of that, that sounds new, it's interesting, but it's not true and it's not biblical and they have no filter and the result is that they're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and we don't want to be those kind of people. We want to be a church full of people who are not tossed to and fro by every wind 
of doctrine, people who are growing towards maturity and maturity in Christ. And so we're going to work towards that end this morning, thinking about Jesus being faithful. If you were to just search the Bible for the word faithful or faithfulness, you would find three groups of verses. The first group of verses you would find would largely be in the Old Testament, and they would be verses talking about Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord being faithful, faithful to His promises, faithful to His covenants, faithful to His people. The second group of verses would be in the New Testament. There's not quite as many, but there's a surprising number where people like the Apostle Paul talk about other Christians, and Paul says, you know, so-and-so, he's a faithful brother. So-and-so is a faithful servant. And they're talking about a characteristic of one or more of God's people. The third group of verses that really we want to focus on this morning are the verses that talk about Jesus and His faithfulness. And I'm just going to put this out for your consideration on the front end. Some of the verses that we're going to look at this morning have the word faithful or faithfulness in them. You can find them with a a dictionary search through the New Testament. Some of the verses we're going to talk about don't actually use that word, but they help us to understand what does it mean that Jesus is faithful. And how should our lives be strengthened and changed as the people of God when we understand the faithfulness of Jesus? So we're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 2. If your Bible is open, we can read together. You can follow along. Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 14 through the end of the chapter. The Bible says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Father, as your people, we just stop to thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth about Jesus revealed to us in the scriptures, and we thank you for this truth that Jesus uh, is not only a merciful high priest, but he is a faithful High priest, And we ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear that truth, hearts to receive it. Father, we do pray for those who have never put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning we're going to talk about who Jesus is. We're going to talk about his perfect finished work. And we pray that you would open hearts to the truth of the gospel. Lord, for those of us who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus, we pray that we would grow deeper in our faith, that we would be moved closer to maturity in understanding the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks back, we did something new as a church on a Wednesday night. Uh, It was not something that we invited our whole congregation to, but we hosted a group of FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, all-star players. 
These were boys and girls that had graduated high school this last year. They'd been selected to be involved in this all-star week for FCA. Their coaches nominated them for this. They were football players and basketball players and volleyball players and cheerleaders. And they were all brought to the Permian Basin for a week of practices and games. And you may have seen some of the, the coverage of this on the local news. We were asked to help to be involved in this because in addition to the practices and the games and all that sort of stuff, uh, they had chapel time or they had worship time and we were asked to host one of those evenings on a Wednesday night and the request came in several parts. Uh, when we met with the FCA leaders and they explained to us what they were doing, the first thing they said is, could you help us with a meal? There's a lot of kids, 170 of them, and they're going to be hungry. And we said, we can help with a meal. We'll have food here. And we knew that our college and career class would show up and serve that food, and they did a great job. You'd be proud of our young people. They came on a Wednesday night. They served others. Uh, they did it joyfully. They did it gladly. So they said, can we have a meal? I said, absolutely, we can do the meal. They said, can we have music? Could we have a time of worship? And I said, I think we can do that. We have a great worship team. Jake, we'll have some folks. We'll, we'll sing. We'll play music. We'll, we'll have a time of worship. That's no problem. The third thing they said is, we want you to preach. And I said, I can preach? What's the plan for the week? And they said, we want you to preach Colossians 1 in 20 minutes. And I did what you just did. I laughed at them. And I said, you got to be kidding me. We just went through the book of Colossians as a church not that long ago, and we spent five weeks on chapter 1. And those five weeks, we just barely scratched the surface of Colossians chapter 1. We could have spent 50 weeks on Colossians chapter 1 and not plumbed all of the depths of it. You want me to take, I said, let me get this straight. You want a meal? Yes, we want a meal. I said, we can do the meal. You want some music? Got it. We can do music. And I said, what you want to do is take 170 high school students, graduated seniors, to be college students. You want to run them in the heat of West Texas for four hours in the afternoon. Then you want to bring them here where we're going to serve them spaghetti and bread. And then you want to bring them into these nice cushioned chairs with air conditioning and you want to give me 20 minutes to preach through Colossians 1. And they said, that's exactly what we want to do. So we did that, and I ended up taking Colossians 1 and paring it down to a smaller passage. Colossians 1, verse 15 to 20. Those verses talk about Jesus. And I'll just be honest with you, those verses, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, they are the deep end of the theological pool. The number of things to talk about and discuss with those students in a relatively short window of time is completely overwhelming. It's just massive truth, biblical truth about who Jesus is and who God is and what salvation is and how all of that fits together. And as I thought this week about the verses we just read in Hebrews 2, the thought occurred to me that Colossians 1, 15 to 20, those six verses... They are the abbreviated version of what you find in Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2 almost point for point takes Colossians 1, 15 to 20 and just unpacks it and expands it. Not at great length, but those six verses are expanded to two whole chapters. And at the heart of Colossians 1 
And at the heart of Hebrews 1 and 2 is Christology. That's the doctrine of Jesus. Who is He? Who is Jesus Christ? What can we say about His person, His character, His attributes? Who is He? That's what Paul's dealing with in Colossians 1, and that's what the author of Hebrews is dealing with in Hebrews chapter 1, in Hebrews chapter 2. The central pulsating heart of both of those passages is the miracle of the incarnation. And I tried to summarize it succinctly for the FCA athletes. I want to try this morning to just summarize it succinctly for you so that we understand what has been said by the time we get to Hebrews chapter 2, the very last couple of verses. This is the miracle of the incarnation. It's the greatest miracle in all the Bible. Absolutely mind-blowing. You begin with the one true God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You begin with God the Son, eternally begotten, not created, but eternally begotten of the Father, who, in the beginning, created everything that exists. He's the Creator. He's the Word who was in the beginning with God and was God, who, according to Colossians 1, sustains everything that He created, who, according to Hebrews 1, upholds the universe by the Word of His power. That eternal Son of God, the Creator, the Word, in the fullness of time, took on flesh. And He dwelt among us. And He took on, this is the miracle of the Incarnation, the eternal Son of God, truly God, the second member, second person of the Trinity, took on a human nature and became truly human without ceasing to be truly God, the God-man. That's the miracle of the incarnation. That's what's at stake in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and that's what the author of Hebrews has been describing in chapter 1 and moving into chapter 2. If you look at Hebrews 1, it says, Long ago, and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, the Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He, the Son, Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The author of Hebrews comes back to this in the verses we read. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says, the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and me, human beings, we're embodied creatures, we are given a soul and a body, we have flesh and blood, that's God's design for human beings. Since we share in flesh and blood, He, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. Eternal God assumed a human body and a human nature. Why? So that He might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to to lifelong slavery. It's not the angels that he helps. Jesus didn't come to ransom the angels. He came to ransom men and women, boys and girls, human beings, the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17 says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He became truly human. If you keep reading into chapter 4, it says that he experienced everything that we experienced as human beings, yet he was without sin. 
perfectly and totally sinless. Otherwise, truly human. Why did he do all of this? Verse 17, so that he might become a merciful high priest. We could talk all morning about his mercy. But what we're going to talk about is his faithfulness. A merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God. That's the question we want to wrestle with this morning. What does the Bible say? What does the New Testament say? What does the book of Hebrews say about the faithfulness of Jesus, our great high priest? I just want you to see three simple truths as we work through these verses and then on to Hebrews chapter 13. Here's the first. Jesus was faithful in the work of propitiation. Jesus was faithful in the work of propitiation. So the author of Hebrews says this in verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make propitiation. I realize that that's not a word you use often in everyday conversation, is it? This last week you probably used words like hot, really hot, Crazy hot, super hot, sweaty. It's been hot. We don't use the word propitiation often. So just a couple basic vocabulary pieces to put in place here. Let's think about it as a verb and then also as a noun. To propitiate as a verb means that you offer a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of another. That's what the verb means. It's a long word, lots of syllables, lots of letters, but that's what it means. A sacrifice is made that satisfies the anger or the wrath of another. And a propitiation, as a noun, is that sacrifice. It's the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of another. What the Bible says in the book of Hebrews and in multiple places in the New Testament, and it's promised and prophesied in the Old Testament, is that Jesus, the Messiah, our great high priest, offered himself as a sacrifice four sinners on the cross, and he did it to propitiate the wrath of the Father, God's wrath towards sinners. His death satisfies God's wrath towards his people. That's a propitiation. How did that happen? Well, the Bible says a couple of things about Jesus' death on the cross. It says that Jesus on the cross became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That's 2 Corinthians 5. Galatians 3 says that he was cursed. He became a curse for us. The curse of God was placed on him so that it might not fall on us. This word propitiation reminds us that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. It's the same idea that's implied when Jesus talks about drinking the cup. And he prays that the cup might pass. The cup is an image from the Old Testament about the wrath of God. And there was no other way for the wrath of God to be satisfied than for Jesus, God the Son, the God-man, to drink it. And He drank it. And He satisfied the Father's wrath towards sinners. He was faithful in this work of propitiation. Now I want to make an important point before we move on. Jesus was faithful to make propitiation. Sometimes in your life, you have to do a thing that you really don't want to do. 
I could give you all kinds of examples, but sometimes you just have responsibilities as a student at school or as a grown-up or a parent or a grandparent or an employee or a boss or whatever, and you say, I have to do this thing, but I'd really rather not do it. And so in the back of your head, you're saying to yourself, look, I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to be happy about it, right? When you're four years old, it probably revolves around broccoli, And you sit down at the dinner table and you're excited about the mac and cheese and you're all about the chicken nuggets and there's that big broccoli tree on your plate. And it looks like a redwood growing out in the forest. And you say, how am I going to get it down? And your mom says, you got to put it down. you got to eat it. you got to eat your vegetables. And your dad says, you got to do what your mom says. Eat it. And as a four-year-old kid, you say, I might have to do it, but I'm not going to like it. And you make all the terrible faces you can make and you choke it down and you make it very plain to your parents, I'll do it because I have to, but I don't like it. Let me give you a more personal example. A couple weeks ago, I was recruited to coach a seventh grade girls volleyball team. You say, I didn't know the pastor knew anything about volleyball. The pastor doesn't know anything about volleyball. But the pastor got recruited to coach this team, and I said, okay, I'll coach this team. Summer league team, this is easy. You just have to show up. You have to be the adult there, put the girls in. No problem. I'll do it. Well, the first thing that happened is all the parents in this group decided we needed to have a practice. Where can we practice? Well, I said, I have a court we could practice at, but it's outside. It's kind of hot this week. And we practiced outside. Last Sunday night, we waited till about 8 p.m. when it cooled off to a crisp 103. And we went out to the court right outside the sanctuary and we practiced volleyball. And I'll just be honest with you, I had a bad attitude about it. I said to myself, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be out here doing this on a Sunday evening. I'm tired and it's hot and I don't know any of these girls. I know my own seventh grade daughter and I know Katie Burks at church. I like those girls, but I don't, I don't like the rest of these girls that much. I mean, I don't know them. I, it's hot. It's so hot. I don't want to do it. But I did it. I did it with a bad attitude. Then guess what? Monday night was game night. Game night. So many teams in this league, there are volleyball games starting as late as 11.30 p.m. My daughter and Katie Burks left town and went to youth camp in the mountains where it's not 800 degrees. And I got to go to OHS at 10.50 p.m. and coach the rest of those girls in a volleyball game. And I'll just be honest with you, I went to OHS and I thought, I don't want to do this. It's already two hours past my bedtime. It's still 105 degrees at 10.50 and it's hot in this gym, and I don't even know these girls. I'm trying to remember all their names. I don't want to do this. But I I said, i got to be faithful. I said I would do it, so I'm going to do it. You do that in your life, right? Sometimes you have things you have to do, and you do them even though you have a terrible attitude about it. You need to understand that Jesus being faithful in the past with regard to propitiation, dying as a sacrifice for sinners, he did not do it with a bad attitude. He did it, John 13 says, out of love for his people. John 13, 1. Before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And immediately in John 13, he got down on his knees and he washed their feet. Why? Because he had to do it? No, because he loved them. 
He had loved them up to that point, and he loved them to the end. Ultimately, what John 13, 1 is talking about is not foot washing, but loving them to the end is propitiation. It's Jesus dying as a sacrifice on the cross, a sacrifice that satisfies the Father's wrath, providing propitiation, drinking that cup and drinking it to the full. Why did he do it? Because he loved his people. Hebrews 2 fills that picture out. Excuse me, Hebrews 12. And Hebrews 12 says that we ought to run with endurance the race set before us. We ought to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There was joy in this work for Jesus. That's what we're talking about when we say he was faithful in it. It's not just that he did it and he made propitiation. He did. But it's that he did it out of love for his people. And he did it for the joy that was set before him. Joy that he would soon share his glory with his followers. And joy that his people would be saved from death. And that he would destroy the one who had the power over death. That is the devil we read that in Hebrews 2. Jesus is faithful in the past in propitiation. Secondly, Jesus is faithful now in the present when it comes to intercession. Intercession. Hebrews 2.18 Because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus can help you in your life. He's experienced suffering. When you experience suffering, He can help you. This is what we call His intercession. Sometimes we might loosely speak of Jesus interceding on our behalf and dying on the cross. That would be true. It would be right. It would be biblical. But doctrinally, theologically, when we talk about Jesus interceding for us, we're not so much thinking about what he did in the past, we're thinking about what he's doing now in the present. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and to just put it very bluntly, he's praying for you. He's pleading your cause to the Father. He's willing to help you as an intercessor. It's a beautiful, beautiful thought. It's a remarkable thought that just sort of blows the categories of your brain into pieces when you think about God the Son who died to satisfy the Father's wrath on your behalf is now in heaven speaking on your behalf continually to God the Father. Paul describes it in Romans chapter 8. He just says it very simply. Who is to condemn the believer? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, present, continuous action. He is now continually interceding for His people. He is praying for His people. He's providing for His people. He's reminding the Father of the finished work that He accomplished in His sacrificial propitiatory death. He intercedes for his people. And the logic of Romans 8 is that this gives you great confidence. If Jesus is doing that, who can condemn you? Who can condemn you as a believer? The one who died to satisfy the Father's wrath directed towards you is now pleading your cause presently, continually with the Father in heaven. Who 
will condemn. You have all of the security you could hope for as a Christian. Propitiation has been made and intercession is being made. You have security. Not the kind of security that says, well, I'm going to go out and sin all I want because Jesus has finished His work and it's all going to get sorted out in the end. Not that kind of security. Paul says in Romans, absolutely not. That's not what we're talking about. It's not the kind of security that says, look, I'm just going to try to live my life and do my thing and I'm going to focus on me and I'm going to live it for self and then someday when I get to heaven, I'll get promoted to the choir and they'll put me up there and I'll sing with the angels and I'll get concerned. Not that kind of security. Not the kind of security that says, look, I'm just going to do this thing. I know it's wrong, but I'm just going to ask God to forgive me later because the pastor said that Jesus has already died for me and he's interceding for me. So that seems like a pretty good deal. I'm just going to do it now and I'll repent later. It's not the kind of security that we're talking about. It's the kind of security that Paul spells out in Romans 5. And we're not going to read it, but I commend it to you this afternoon or this evening. Romans 5. The verses are on your notes. Romans 5, where Paul simply says, While you were God's enemy, while you were a sinner, while you were an object of God's wrath, Jesus died for you then. He provided full and complete propitiation to satisfy the Father's wrath while you were God's enemy. The heavy lifting is done. The hard part is in the past. It's finished. It's a perfect work. And in the present, the very same Jesus is interceding for you, the one who died for you, the one who satisfied the Father's wrath on your behalf. Who is there to condemn? And the obvious answer is no one. Faithful in the work of propitiation. Faithful in the work of intercession. This is why the Apostle Paul will say to the church in Philippi that the one who started a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's sure and he's certain that this good work will be carried out. Faithful in propitiation, faithful in intercession, that's the past and the present. Let's talk about the future. Jesus will always be faithful in the work of revelation. Revelation. So I want to be clear about what I'm talking about here. Hebrews 13. I'm not talking about the book of Revelation here, although I gave you some references in the book of Revelation that talk about Jesus being the faithful witness. You can look those up. So we're not talking about big R, the book of Revelation. We're also not saying that Jesus will be faithful into the future in Revelation. I'm not saying that you can expect Jesus to continually, day by day, sort of whisper nuggets of truth into your ear. Like he's just going to speak directly to you and no one else, and you can just sort of take those things to the bank. That's not what we're talking about at all. What we're saying when we say Jesus will always be faithful to Revelation is we're saying that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. Did you catch that in Hebrews 1? We read those verses earlier. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, and we live in those last days, this is the last period of redemptive history, in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. And Jesus, the Son, has spoken to us through His apostles in the Scriptures. 
Holy Spirit of God, sent by Jesus to be the helper, has carried the apostles along as they wrote these things that we're reading in the New Testament. And what I'm saying to you is Jesus is going to be faithful to what he has said in the Bible forever. Forever, forever, forever. Look with me at Hebrews 13, and let's just read verse 7, 8, and 9. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Verse 7, listen to your leaders, specifically the ones who spoke to you the word of God. Not the ones who got up and spouted off on their own opinions of things, but those who spoke to you about the Word of God. Remember them. Verse 9, do not be led astray by diverse or strange teachings. Don't follow anything that varies from what you heard from the Word of God. Not one inch. Don't move an inch. Verse 8, right in the middle of it, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't mean this as any knock on you because it's probably equally true for me this last week. But if I asked you at the beginning of the service, how many of you have ever heard the verse, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever? You'd probably say, oh yeah, I've heard that. That's a good one. I'd say, where's it at? You say, mm, I don't know, but I know it. And I'd give you credit for it. It's a good one to know. But if I said to you or even to myself before this last week, can you tell me what the author of Hebrews says immediately before that and immediately after that? Do you know what's going on in that passage? You'd probably be as much of at a loss as I was. But what does he say? He says, number one, on the front end, listen to your leaders, remember your leaders who taught to you, who spoke to you the Word of God. You have got to be grounded in the Scriptures. And then, in verse 9, he says, don't move off that ground for any diverse or strange teachings. Not one inch. Don't be led astray. And the reason is right in the middle. Why should you continually listen to the Word of God? Why should you never follow any diverse or strange teachings? Here's the reason. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is faithful to Himself. And what he has spoken in the, script, the scriptures will not change or need to be updated. Now look, you need to remember this because you live in a time and a place where you are constantly bombarded with the idea that this book needs to be updated. It comes from every direction in the 21st century in the United States. It comes from the direction of cosmology, the origins of the universe. And people will say to you, well, you know, the Bible, it's got a nice little story about God and the man and the woman and the creation, all that stuff. That's nice. That's a nice little fairy tale you have in that book. But we have modern science and astrology and chemistry and evolutionary biology. And we know a lot more than these primitive people knew thousands of years ago. And so you can cling to your little story, but we just need to update some of these things for what we know now. This happens daily in our culture with regard to not only cosmology, but also anthropology. What's a human being? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be married? What is gender and sexuality, and how does all that fit in together? We live in a day and age where people say to us 
constantly. Look, modern psychology, modern sociology, we understand that these things are fluid and we're free to redefine these things. The Bible is very restrictive in how it presents human beings, men and women, and we just need to update things and bring them into the 21st century. People say this with regard to the doctrine of salvation. That's called soteriology. Soteriology. People say, you believe in Jesus? Great. Wonderful. Good for you. That's fantastic. I'm happy that you have a meaningful spiritual belief. But when you begin to say to people that there is only one true God and that Jesus Christ is the only way that a sinner can be made right with God, that's where people say, oh, no, 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 no. Postmodernism has taught us that you can have your way and I can have my way and we just need to all be happy with each other's ways. You're going to have to update that exclusivity stuff. Maybe most shockingly, you know where you hear this from? You hear it from people within the church when it comes to what the church is and how the church operates. On the very most primitive level, you have people saying things like, look, if your church doesn't get with the times, you're going to die. You're going to get left behind. And usually what they're talking about, because people say that to me regularly as a pastor, usually what they're talking about is style of music. That's what they mean. Style of music and what clothes does the pastor wear. That's what they're talking about. If you don't get with the times, you're going to get left behind. You're just going to be left in the dustbin of history. Other people say, look, I understand that the Bible has instructions about how the church ought to function and who ought to be put into leadership and the relationship of men and women and elders and deacons and all this. But look, that's just kind of, this is really old book. It's been 2,000 years, and it's time that we update some of this stuff and bring it into the 21st century. And to all of those things that you get bombarded with on a daily basis and more, I just draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 13. Where the author of Hebrews says in verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. You don't need to remember anything about me or any of our elders or your Sunday school teacher other than what they have to say to you about the word of God. Remember your leaders as they speak to you the word of God. Verse 9, Do not be led astray by diverse or strange teachings. Why? Why do we make our stand on what God has revealed about Himself in the Scriptures? Why do we refuse to move one inch off of the New Testament, even though it's a 2,000-year-old compilation of books? Because, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's faithful. All the things that we're talking about this morning are basic gospel truths. The Bible reveals the truth about the one true God who is holy. He's the creator. The Bible reveals to us the truth about our sin. We have fallen short of his glory. The Bible reveals to us the truth about Jesus. The second person of the Trinity who took on human flesh. Who provided faithfully propitiation for his people who even now intercedes for His people, and who into the future will always be faithful to what is revealed about Himself in the Scriptures. 
There's good news in Jesus Christ. And the call on your life is to agree with God about your sin problem and to put your faith in the finished work of Jesus, His propitiation, and the ongoing work of Jesus, His intercession, and the future faithfulness of Jesus, that He will be faithful to what He's revealed to us in the Scriptures. Look, it doesn't matter if you're preaching a a sermon at Emmanuel on a Sunday morning. That's the message. We've got 22 people about to go around the world to Kenya. Guess what they're going to say? Jesus is faithful. He's the Savior. He's the ruler. He's our friend. He's faithful. If you're talking to a group of hot, sweaty, full-bellied athletes, that's the message. We don't have anything else to say. It's the truth about who Jesus is. And it's the truth that we want to be grounded in. He's the ruler. He's the Savior. He's our friend. And He's faithful.